Section 3 of By the Marshes of Minus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. By the Marshes of Minus by Sir Charles G. D. Roberts. The Bewitchment of Lieutenant Handworthy. Part 1. Being leaves from his memoirs, setting forth certain adventures which befell him on Thanksgiving Day. As the sun, dropping through a raw and fire-edged slit in the cloud, sank behind South Mountain, some three miles off to my right, I snuggled my head deeper into the fold of my thick cloak and spurred my good sorrel to a trot. This wind, drawing down the long valley of the Port Royal stream, had a bleaker unfriendliness than even the bleak east wind which I imagined whistling at this moment over my own hill pastures of Salem. Across the harsh, salty smells of blowing gusts from the half-uncovered mudflats of the river, my memory of old Thanksgivings at home called up most rich and tender savors of roast goose, till an appetite of huge anticipation began to riot beneath my waistcoat. Should I be in time? For my sake, the hour had been set late, far beyond the ordinary, but it was even now near, and the roofs of Port Royal were yet a good six miles distant. With dejection, I remembered the Major's parting words. Punctuality, remember, be on hand at the minute. Not even for you, Mark, my boy, shall such a goose as Tamman has brought in be suffered to spoil by waiting. Though the good sorrow was tired and owed me naught on that day's journeying, I pushed him to his utmost. I could not contemplate with equanimity the loss of such a dinner as might make me forget my long months of Acadian exile. It was five months since I had left Salem, coming to Acadia with the Boston expedition for the capture of Port Royal. In the taking of it, there had been some spirit some diversion, in truth. But the holding of it was daily growing monotony. The Acadians seemed passably content with their new masters. No peril menaced the green-sodden ramparts of our prize. The townsfolk trafficked in an established peace, selling us their fish and flax, and in the dearth of matters more stirring for discussion, the Major's Thanksgiving dinner had been for days a theme of grave import. I thought of the gravity with which the Major, on Monday of the preceding week, had announced his purpose. With his little council of five officers, among whom I had the honor to be his secretary and aide, he had been considering certain weighty matters of his government, when suddenly, swerving from questions of toll and tax, his voice took on a deeper tone, and he said, Gentlemen, since duty dooms us to this exile, even upon the approaching day of thanksgiving, I have resolved that New England shall, in a sense, upon that day, be brought to us. He paused for a moment, and approbation shone in our faces. These good people of Acadia, he went on, do not observe our feast, but I have noted that they can supply the wherewithal for its proper observance. Their ducks and geese feed fat upon these marshes. Their gardens are instructed in the growth of sage and onions. They are not unskilled in the subtleties of applesauce. 
and I have found pumpkins. You observe the possibilities. Well, I may add that our good Joseph, who has ruled our kitchen so capably these months past, has acquired, with suggestions for myself, the art of making such a pumpkin pie as might pass for the product of Duxbury or Dedham. The major hailed from Duxbury. Oh, her pies will pass, I assure you. But mince, I have not suffered her to essay. But failure there, you will agree, would be a desecration. The memory of this speech appealed now most potently to my imagination. The major's face, too, as he leaned forward over the council table to note the effect of his words, came pleasantly before me. It was a strange face, but I loved it well. The forehead broad, low-arched, and bald far back to the very crown of the skull, was fenced, as it were, with a stiff, forward, bristling fringe of red hair, recalcitrant to the brush. The eyes, small but deeply clear, beamed sweet humor, but the mouth, little better than a long crevice across the bleak and stony promontory of his chin, was such as men made haste to conciliate. The nose, large and much awry, gave me ever a notion that the rest of the face had been finished earlier, and this feature added afterward, lavishly but hastily, in the dark. It came upon me now as I mused that herein lay the incongruity which ever sat upon our good major's face. This nose, a ceaseless entertainment to the tolerant and mirthful eyes, was a ceaseless affront to the uncompromising mouth, thence conflict perennial in the major's countenance. Pleased at this whimsical solution of an ancient enigma, I chuckled aloud. The patient sorrow cocked his ears at the sound and cheerily bettered his pace. He doubtless reasoned that, if his master were pleased, some good thing for both must be close at hand. I looked carefully about me. There, behind a screen of fir trees, a stone's throw back from the road, rose three sharp gables in a row. It was the place of the Sir de Belle Isle, a very great man among the Acadians. I perceived that, in my musings of Thanksgiving meats and the Major's nose, I had beguiled a good mile of the journey. My appetite was furious, but my humor was mending. The major will wait a half hour for me, I said confidently in my heart. As I passed the wide open gate of the deep bell Isle place, the sorrel swerved obstinately to enter, as if here, in his opinion, with a fitting termination to his journey. Reining him back to the road, I could not but laugh again, but I recalled another word of the major's to me as I was setting out on my journey. Better not stop at the Tabell Isle place on your way, he had said, his eyes twinkling askance over the biased nose. If you do, you will be sure to miss the goose. Why, sir? I had inquired with interest. There is a witch there and he had turned away into the barracks, very stiff and soldierly, in his well-kept uniform. Had he been a sailor man, he would not have spoken so lightly of witches. I had heard of Mademoiselle de Belle Isle, but I had never seen her. She had been in Quebec, and was but lately returned to Acadia with her uncle. I had heard of her strange beauty, of her mocking gaiety, the warmth of her great eyes, 
the illimitable coldness of her heart. Now, as I passed her uncle's gates, a sense of the wonder and the nearness of her beauty came upon me in a fashion that made me marvel. My interest in the major's dinner went out like a snuffed candle. So inconsistent an organ is the stomach of a man who has brains and imagination. The fat ghost at that moment, being discreetly basted at Port Royal, was forgotten, just because I had apprehended that a woman's eyes were beautiful. I regretted that I had not let my sorrow carry me through the gate, but the notion of turning back was not for a moment entertained. Never have I accounted myself a candidate for the fellowship of Lot's wife. Then of a sudden the face of Mademoiselle de Belle Isle flashed upon the eyes of my soul. Her face, it could be none other. Yet never, as I have already said, had I seen the maiden, and never had she been described to me, save in a general shiny confusion of mobile features and unfathomable eyes. It did not occur to me to doubt that the face which now so curiously crossed my brain could be any face but hers, and I found myself muttering, René de Belle Isle, it is a name of music very fitting to so fair a face. Then I remembered that, to the best of my knowledge, I had never been told her name was René. Fool, I snapped aloud, pulling myself together and sitting erect in the saddle, Fool, these are the hallucinations of the fasting. Her name is most likely to be Nanette, Babette, Lisette, or such light nonsense. Renée, indeed. Why should I think of that for a name? Let me return to thoughts of the major's goose, well stuffed with sage and onions. But there was a witchcraft in the air, and do what I would, my thoughts flew wild, dispersed like a copy of birds. I noted now particularly, though why it was a matter for particular notice I could not have told, that I had come to the limit of the thick spruce hedge which fronted the garden of the Debelle Isle place. Beyond this limit I passed with a dragging, incomprehensible reluctance, and I perceived to my astonishment that my hand upon the rein had brought the good sorrel to a stop. As if to give me a reason for my stopping, Pat upon the moment came a sharp cry of distress from behind the covert of the hedge. It was not loud, but it was imperative. Who's there? What's the matter? I demanded brusquely. There was a moment of silence, thrilled by the passing phantom of a sob. Then came a voice so close that I started. I am afraid, monsieur, that is very much that I need your help. I fear it is that I have sprained my poor ankle for I have not the power to at all stand up. The voice was very low and quiet, but penetratingly clear. The quaintly accented and foreignly ordered syllables seemed to me the sweetest music I had ever heard. The blood throbbed up into my temples. I am coming, mademoiselle, I cried, a sort of thickness in my tones, and whirling my sorrel I put at a fast gallop back to the gate. Along the hedge, just within, ran a broad path, in but a handful of seconds, so to speak. I had flung myself from the saddle and was standing beside a girl, whose downcast, half-averted face made me think of the flower of a white lily. A heavy lock of dark hair had fallen far forward, 
hiding half the bronzer of her cheek and chin. She was dressed all in black, save for a scarf of orange-colored silk flung carelessly about her shoulders. She sat in an attitude of tense constraint, as if resolved upon no weak feminine outcry, and with both white hands she clasped a slippered foot of exceeding smallness and grace, at glimpse of which the old saw came across my memory. The littlest foot may be heaviest on a man's neck. Do you think, mademoiselle, you could walk with my assistance? I inquired, bending over her cap and hand. She lifted her face. She lifted her drooping white lids and gave me one darkly brilliant look. I so large, so enigmatic, so mysteriously deep I had never before imagined. The look dropped again upon the moment, but in that moment I experienced a swift and breathless sinking of the heart, and it seemed that life rushed by me dizzily. The sensation was incomprehensible to me then, but afterward I knew that it was a sensation very proper to one falling a great depth, for in that moment my spirit fell into the deeps of her eyes. After a little hesitation, she gave me her hand and tried to rise, but I took her gently by the arms and lifted her. For an instant so she stood, leaning upon me. Then she sank to the ground again with the catching of the breath. I am afraid it is no use, monsieur, she said, speaking now in French, as I had addressed her in that tongue. It hurts too much, perhaps, though I am afraid I am terribly heavy. You could lift me into the saddle, and in that way, monsieur, you could get me to the house. End of section three.